Hey, welcome to the Metal Detecting Show, episode number nine. My name is Kieran, and this week I talk about return on investment and hordes. We have our regular tech timeout, and of course, some news from the world of metal detecting and treasure hunting. So let's get on with the show. Hey, I just want to thank you personally for taking the time to listen to my podcast. I can't believe we're at episode number nine. If you want to give me feedback or interact with the show, and I hope you do, please reach out to me on Twitter at Detecting The or Instagram at The Metal Detecting Podcast. Or if you want to pop me an email to Kieran, that's C-I-A-R-A-N at TheMetalDetectingShow.com. Have you been out hunting this week? I believe globally the isolation restrictions have started to lift, so hopefully you are starting to get back out there. I got out hunting twice this week. Day one, I hit the beach I have discussed in previous episodes. I gridded a section of the beach and carried my third pass successfully. I knew it was successful when my finds were few and far between, so much so that at one stage I thought my detector was malfunctioning as I wasn't hitting any targets. I had to do that thing all detectorists do, and that is constantly wave the coil over my boot or scoop to make sure my detector was still operating. The best of my finds include a buckle that's age is yet to be determined and a pre-euro decimal 2p coin from 1971. Now, not that old, but this along with the 1p coin I found on day one tells me that there is old finds waiting for me to find them. It is like I'm slowly peeling away the years and bringing up the old stuff. Taking a side tangent here and referring back to my episode on gaining permissions, while detecting the beach, someone who will remain nameless approached me to say hi as we are familiar with each other from helping out at the local sports club for kids. Turns out this person was a total history buff and unbeknownst to me is the recent owner of an old manor house that was built in the 1700s and a house that I've been trying to figure out ownership of for years as it's on my route home from my day job. This person went on to say I can hunt the grounds at any time and we split everything 50-50. This is an absolute dream. I think it helps that this person has lived in a country where they are more acceptable of metal detectorists but just goes to show getting involved in the local community absolutely has a positive effect on your ability to get permissions. Anyways, back to my adventures in metal detecting this week. On day two, I decided to hunt a small grassy picnic area that leads to the entrance of a USAF base. At this point, I would like to point out that this site is nowhere near any registered sites of archaeological interest and in fact is not registered at all on any of the restricted maps. I went early in the morning when I knew there wouldn't be many people around walking dogs and kids, so as to limit any interruptions. But little did I know that was soon to change. There I am, head down and ass up in the air, and I hear a scream saying, You can't do that, it's illegal. I look up to see this pretty young guy running over to me repeating, You can't do that, it's illegal. I straight away get my back up by his aggressive nature and reply, Of course I can, it's not illegal. He turns around and says he's an archaeologist from the museum and I can't be detecting on the site of a World War I base. I point out that I'm not on the site of a World War I base, as there is the gate to the site that is actually a mile away, and this site and the World War I base are not registered on any of their databases. He replied he didn't care, and that I was clearly searching for archaeological items on the site of a World War I base. I replied that I was actually looking for modern coinage on this popular picnic site, and actually showed him the bag of tinfoil I had found at this point. 
He eventually seemed to calm down as I just kept on chatting to him about how he was tarring all metal detectors with the same brush and needed to understand that there are two groups of metal detectors in the world. One that wants to do it right with the help of the museums and the Nighthawks who are only in it for the money and that I was part of the group that want to do it right. The discussion continued. We discussed what to find an archaeological object, the interpretation of the law and how Nighthawks have ruined the hobby in the past. I think my incessant discussion wore him out to the point he agreed to disagree and went on his merry way. So if there's any hot take here, it is not only good enough to know the law, but it is vital to know the law and how the authorities are interpreting the law. And finally, as an FYI, I'm still waiting on contact from Nocta support, but alas, not their fault. I missed their call while I was recording last week's podcast. Yikes! So, I want to talk this week about hordes. Now, hordes mean different things depending on what part of the world you're in. In Europe, a horde can be a collection of objects from many BCs ago to a large collection of modern finds. In the UK, more than three coins is what constitutes a horde. Now, in the US for example, now correct me if I'm wrong here, this is a European's interpretation of the situation. A horde is generally the same as Europe, a large collection of objects whose value is greater than their intrinsic value. However, where the Americas different is in the time the period the horde has been found from. In Europe, we have thousands of years to draw from, as Europe has been using metal for currency for thousands of years. Now, in America, they have not been using metallurgy as currency, simply as Native Americans did not engage in metallurgy as much as the European tribes, resulting in any hoard found prior to 1492 when Columbus sailed those seas of blue, a very rare occurrence. I know there was the Aztecs and several tribes in Mexico that used gold, but not to the same extent as the Europeans. Because of this, many America's hordes tend to be from an era post-1492 and of Spanish gold, either brought in by pirates or by the Spaniards themselves. This makes hoard finds very rare in the Americas. However, in Europe, you can't find a local museum that doesn't have on display a hoard that was found locally. Some of my favourites include the Loving Cup or the Ringlemere Gold Cup, a Bronze Age vessel found in the English country of Kent. In 2001, damage when found but still considered remarkable as it is only one of seven unstable cups found around Europe. Another is the Edward Rowe Snow Pirate Treasure. I would imagine you are familiar with this story of Edward Snow following a treasure map to Spanish and Portuguese gold clutched in the hands of a skeleton. I wonder is that where the idea of the Goonies came from? Hmm. But none can compare to the great hoard found in 2001 valued at £5.2 million. The Staffordshire hoard, containing 3,500 items, remains one of the biggest and most famous hoards to date. How to find hoards? Well, isn't that the £5.2 million question? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Well, I'm not going to tell you how to find hoards, as there is certainly some luck involved in finding them. However, hoards breed hoards. It's not uncommon in Europe, anyways, that there are hoards found in sites that had already produced a hoard. So some detectors will focus on searching previously detected sites where a hoard had been found. There is also another technique being adopted, and that is using Google Maps to map the location of hoards to discern any perceivable patterns in the scattering of finds or in identifying hotspots of hoards. Using this information as research to help narrow down good sites to an area that will have an increased probability of producing a hoard. None of these techniques have yet to be proven repeatable, with too few examples of success. 
Up next is this week's Tech Time Out about ROI or Return on Investment. Time for this week's Tech Time Out! <laughs> I think I'm going to stop doing that. Okay, an unusual one in this week's Tech Time Out. I'm going to talk about return on investment and why you should always have it at the back of your mind and use it to build out your hunting plan. So what do I mean when I talk about return on investment? I'm talking about maximizing returns while minimizing losses. So how does this relate to metal detecting, I hear you say? Well, let me put it this way. Maximizing your good finds while minimizing the loss of time due to the bad finds. So let's break down the things we do in metal detecting into things that maximizes good finds and minimizes bad finds. So what are the things we do and can do to maximize the good finds? Well, first we need to know what we are searching for, as one man's good find is another man's bad find. So target selection is one major thing we can do to maximize good finds. If you know what you're looking for, you can tailor your site selection to best suit that find. For example, if you're into history, you're probably going to focus on relic hunting and in the main focus on finding sites that could have the finds you're looking for. You're probably not into it for the monetary value, but what it brings you in intrinsic value of the finds, resulting in you being unlikely to sell your finds. Now, if your goal is more in the monetary arena, then you're probably going to focus on beach hunting, pulling modern coinage and jewelry for you to spend or to sell on with no emotional attachment to the find whatsoever. Now, before someone comes at me saying, I only beach hunt and I love history, these are two extremes along a long line of possibilities. So you, you have selected the find you want to find, and because of this, you now have narrowed down your site selection to suitable sites for what you're looking for. You can now maximize your good finds by selecting the right equipment for your job. A detector great at saltwater, for example, might not be great in a field, but if your only focus is on beaches, then you're maximizing your good finds. It's all well and good to have great equipment, but if you can't use it, then you're limiting your return on investment. So learn your detector inside and out. Add accessories that allow your recovery of finds quicker, like a sand scoop or a pinpointer that will exponentially increase your finds recovery rate. And if you only have a few hours to detect, then every minute counts. As a quick tip, learn to use your coil properly. Know where the find will sit under the coil as this will help recovery times. Now, this is a little bit weird. Think about your physical fitness. Is this allowing you to maximize your time out detecting? This is where I let myself down. I can manage a three hour hunt quite easily, but imagine the coverage I would have if I could detect for eight to 10 hours, as some of you monsters can do. In episode seven, I talked about search patterns, and this is definitely something that can maximize the good finds. I won't repeat that here, but go back and listen to that episode if you haven't yet. So right now, in the list of things we can do to maximize our good finds, our find selection, site selection, equipment selection, and physical fitness. All these things, when used correctly, maximize your returns. However, if any one of them is incorrectly utilized, then they have a negative influence on your return on investment. How many times have you heard of someone trying to use a detector that is best suited for relic hunting on a field as a beach detector and wondering why they aren't finding anything? Where do you think permissions and discrimination sit on the list? 
Well, permissions can have a negative effect on return on investment. Obviously, if you have no permissions, where are you going to detect? If you have a wide selection of permissions, but none are suitable sites for what you want to search for, but you search anyways because you're excited to be detecting and disappointed after spending weeks searching a field and not finding what you want just because you had permission on it to search. This is where you should adjust what you want to find to suit the site and maximize your returns. Let's finish up with discrimination. This is another factor that can have both a negative or a positive effect on your return on investment, but a good detectorist will know how to strike a balanced discrimination to ensure that they are keeping out the time-sucking bad finds and maximizing the good finds. So let's recap quickly. Decide what you want to find, but remember, you may need to adjust this based on site selection. This is dictated by your permissions. Select a suitable site to the finds. Select the best equipment you can afford for the finds you want to find and know that equipment inside out. Ensuring you are physically fit to maximize your time available and strike a balance with discrimination, dancing the fine line while maximizing your good finds and minimizing the time taken from bad finds. That's it for this week's Tech Time Out. If you have any feedback, just let me know. I don't pretend to know everything and this podcast is as much about me learning as you. Up next is the news from the world of metal detecting. Okay, time for this week's news from the world of metal detecting. First up in TampaBay.com, Florida, an amazing story. Treasure Hunter says he was tricked by con man claiming to be a war hero scientist. Dr. Michael Torres, whose credibility is being called into question by his previous employer, Seafarer Exploration, who hired Torres to take charge of new technology to assist in treasure hunting, but now claim he is full of rubbish and can spout this stuff off like no tomorrow. They say absolutely none of it was true, but unless you're an engineer, you would never know it. Check out the amazing story in TampaBay.com. And magnet fishing again is in the news this week. Magnet fishing is certainly the new hotness right now as 60 lead blocks with strange inscriptions found at the bottom of a river by a magnet fishing team and nobody knows what they are or what the inscriptions mean. Check out this story in checkersaga.com and as usual all the links are in the show notes. Okay I hope you like this episode of the Metal Detecting Show podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Detecting The or Instagram at The Metal Detecting Podcast. If you want to contribute or have suggestions for topics to cover, pop us an email to Kieran at TheMetalDetectingShow.com. And don't forget to check out our website, www.TheMetalDetectingShow.com, for this episode's show notes. Check out our Patreon page if you want to help the podcast stay alive or just want to buy me a coffee. Just search for The Metal Detecting Show. Once again, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and we will chat to you all again next week. Get out there and happy hunting. Hold up. 